by now it's about three years later. Soya has completely taken over my life. She has more clothes <laughs> than I have. When I travel, I always have to pack for her and for myself. My boyfriend hates her because she's in a <laughs> triangle relationship with the cow and me. <laughs> Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. I'm so excited to have Daniel Hellman on the show today. Daniel is a singer, performer, dancer, and theater maker. He studied philosophy, classical singing, and theater performance. And since 2012, he has been developing his own artistic work, touring internationally and winning various awards. Daniel sees his artistic practice as a form of intersectional activism. His projects explore the body, body relationships and desires, his projects explore the body, bodily relationships and desire, and question social norms and power relations in the fields of sexuality, human and animal rights. Daniel is the consummate artist, an effervescent human who is always looking out into the world and mining his experiences to tell a larger story. Daniel is from Zurich, but our paths crossed in 2016 in Berlin as we both got involved in welcoming the refugees who were moving to Germany. In 2018, we both found ourselves in the San Francisco Bay Area, where the idea for his current project and alter ego, Soya the Cow, was beginning to germinate. Soya the Cow is the world's first sex-positive feminist female drag cow. She is a beautiful, imposing queen in horns, layers of makeup, jewelry, and gorgeous draped dresses, sometimes complete with udders. A kind of tragic heroine, but also full of life and joy. Soya's existence is a sort of poetic statement that links the inhumane way we treat the animals we eat with the way we treat each other and the dire results that behavior is having on our planet. The One Cow Show, Dear Human Animals, premiered in 2020. As Soya, he appears in theaters, panel discussions, and nightclubs, and his first music album, Purple Grass, released earlier this year. Soya's own motto is, is it activism? Is it entertainment? Is it art? Who cares? She's here to make the world a kinder place. My conversation with Daniel explored the parallels between our relationships between ourselves and our art, between each other as humans, and between our species and the rest of the planet, constantly probing the question of who gets to have dignity and whose stories, whose voices, will we take the time to hear. I hope you enjoy Welcome to Making It an Opera, and thank you for being part of the first season. I'd like to start with what brought you into opera, what attracted you to it, yeah, what, what got you going to school in it? 
So, um, yeah, it's a funny story. I actually, when I was three years old, uh, my parents showed me the, the Magic Flute film by Bergman, Ingmar Bergman, and I loved it. So I was obsessed with the Magic Flute and I made drawings of it. I wanted to go as Tamino to the, to the carnival, I know, like as a little boy. And then a few years later in school, my primary school teacher brought in like leaflets about the Zurich Boys Choir um saying that and in these leaflets was written that that the um, the soloists can sing the three boys in the magic flute so i came home with the signing up thing already filled out i could hardly write like that <laughs> and so i just wanted to be one of these boys and my parents thought oh gosh a boys choir how conservative you know <laughs> but oh, why was that considered conservative for them I know they, they. I mean, my my mom loves. Uh, she sings in a choir, but I don't know. She just they imagined more like modern hobbies for their son, maybe. But in the same time, I was so convinced that like I want to go there. So there was nothing to to say about that. And it later turned out that the teacher she threw these flyers away because we lived in a quite uh, in a neighborhood where she didn't expect anybody being interested in this kind of hobby. But then she took it out from the, from the bin and was like, "Ah, oh, maybe Daniel." So it really worked. I joined this choir um, quite quickly. Also, I like the the choir master who was a huge and important mentor for me in these early years. Yeah, he discovered that I was very musical, had a nice voice. So I became a soloist. I did start to sing in the Magic Flute. I had my opera debut in Zurich. Uh, I don't know which year was that. 97 or maybe 96. <laughs> uh, singing the first soprano. And I, I think I did like in two different stagings I did about 40 uh, shows or performances as a as a yeah first boy so I don't know this was really in me I experienced singing uh, I was back then I would say very excluded in school I was uh, probably already queer before I knew about it I was uh, from kind of a Jewish secular intellectual family I was just very different than all the other kids. But in this boys choir, I felt like for the first time I had friends. Um, I had also kind of very special statues as a soloist. We toured like to European countries. We were several times in the US with our boys choir. I was always a bit like the soloist back then. And so when my voice changed, it was really hard. It was just like, oh, I, I really felt like my identity is being ripped off and everything mm. that I am is gone. So... Then I went through school years, but it was kind of always in the air that I would continue studying singing, mm. even though I had major doubts already back then, but I didn't listen to them maybe enough. So it's an interesting story. I was always having this kind of two sides in me, one side, which was like, I love this music. I love the emotions. I love singing for people. I love sharing my, like, yeah, my feelings, my soul. And at the same time, oh. I want something else. I want something more political, more anchored in, in my daily life. I want to organize protests or go to walks for peace. So I had these two sides already very present. And when I was 18, my voice was still terrible. And my range was like a fifth. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I want to be a singer, but I had like literally no voice at all. So uh, there were teachers, they were like, okay, you have to be patient. You have to take some years in maturity, let your body become a full adult. <laughs> They're like, I want to sing now. And mm -hmm. so I studied philosophy for two years. I didn't finish. 
And I remember very well, I had a conversation with my ethics teacher. So I was in this kind of pre-professional music conservatory from the music academy, but at the same time doing philosophy. And I asked her like, is it ethical that I want to become a singer? Or should I actually uh, rather do something where that ends world hunger, you know, like this kind of dichotomy. And she kind of laughed at me and was like, why? Every job can be done ethically. It's not about like, is it you can be an ethical banker I'm, I'm not so sure about that but <laughs> no, probably you can but I had these questions about like how can I have a positive impact on the world um, and I loved singing but it felt somehow also like an ego choice to pursue singing where I felt I have the skills and or the intelligence to maybe become uh, I don't know, an astrophysicist <laughs> and discover, <laughs> discover a new galaxy. No, but I mean, of course, it was also this young naivety, but these two sides were already always there, I would say. But then I decided to go and study singing. I went to music academy in Lausanne. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved learning. I loved singing. My voice became a bit bigger. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You got over that fifth hump. Kind of, but I, I still feel like, I mean, this was also part of my journey. I, I had kind of this stamp as a huge talent since my childhood, but I feel like I never lived up to that. The natural way of singing when I was a kid, I was just like standing there singing without like the self-awareness that I had as an adult. And I just never felt it really became the same thing till today. So it's, it's more mm. like, like having technical knowledge but also being self-aware, of course, now I know how many amazing singers there are in the world and you compare and you think. And like, so I think I was more in my brain also during my studies. And I quickly realized also, I'm not so interested in practicing for hours. So just that my, the phrase goes round until the very last note, I just breathe one, one times more, who cares? I can use my time better. <laughs> I had this kind of, um, this, this thing where I loved everything, but I was also not, I didn't have the commitment like a, like the, the athlete or like the one that wants to become the best. I just wanted to sing and tell stories. And I managed to trick myself through for quite a long time. I would say I was, I never developed like best technical skills, but I was charismatic. I was smart. I was quick. I was musical. I could learn also contemporary scores. So I don't know. I, I felt like I can find like a professional niche without being the best singer. But at the same time, my dream was to sing like the big roles and the big drama and as a like, I don't know, bass baritone, baritone voice, you not start, you don't start with that stuff. You sing the second soldier and the doctor who comes in the fourth actors to say that she's dead. And so so I, I had this, uh, yeah, it was like, it was a funny, weird mix also. Actually, my, my initiation to music, classical music was more to chorus or choral singing and, and not so much opera. And then mm -hmm. later through my teachers, maybe I was also pushed a bit in this opera uh, side um, because I loved the stories. I loved the rawness of the emotions. And the, I don't know where I loved like listening to all these operas and the different recordings. I was really kind of obsessed with it to a point where now I'm like, oh my God, I had no, absolutely no like pop culture references, but I knew all the different recordings of Salome. <laughs> That's hilarious considering where you are now. Yeah, exactly. What you're yeah, doing. It's <laughs> absurd. <laughs> so I'm wondering, did the big dream of becoming the big soloist, do you feel like that was really from you or do, 
do you feel like that was that was kind of something that you looked out in the industry and thought, well, this is what I should want. I mean, I wanted to sing Tosca and Traviata. I wanted to be the female tragic hero. I mean, that's how my heart was, you know, but then of course it didn't uh, work out. <laughs> I didn't have the voice or the right gender or anything. So I was, uh, but if I'm honest, looking back, I mean, that's the, the characters that, that really inspired me usually. Mm. It's, mm. Um, and you are really a prima donna. I mean, I Soya the Cow that- is like one of the most beautiful fantastic divas now uh, now I, I kind of found a way to access this way of being yeah being the prima donna without um without having to say no to going to bars and all these things also you know so it's like um I would say like in a way I had to f- in, like find my niche then I, I realized okay I'm never going to be the Italian baritone so maybe I really imagined if I work hard enough, I can sing like the German character bass baritone roles. I mean, the dream then became Wotan, you know, and like, but come on. Then I was like, I'm 24. I don't know which, and I'm not going to sing that tw- in the next 20 years even. I just have, you could, and I was like, do I really want to work in a field where I reach my peak like so late and probably never? But that was just one aspect. And I had like a key moment, I would say, um, it was in 2009, so I was 23, and I, I was accepted to the Aspen Music School Summer Academy, which felt like a really big thing for me. Um, so I came to Aspen, and I was really like excited. I was like, "Wow! Like I'm, I'm one of these students who can go there." And on my first weekend, I went on a hike to a mountain lake, and I went to swim there because in Switzerland everybody goes to swim in every lake, but not in Colorado apparently. So I I I, I got infected with some like parasite in this water. Oh no! Yes, I spent two weeks in my bathroom um, throwing up. It was horrible. My voice was completely like uh, with all the acid from the. Like, it was it was a disaster. So in the end, I couldn't really like benefit much, I would say, from this whole <laughs> situation there. But what was amazing for me was just understanding the like the size of this industry. Suddenly being like from small Switzerland in this kind of American opera industry complex and understanding how all these careers are built and seeing that. I was like, it just didn't didn't really speak to me. And I I had uh a lovely summer affair with a dancer from the Aspen Saint Fee Ballet. So I went to their shows and some of these more contemporary pieces, they just moved me so much. There was something I was like, wow, this is contemporary creation. It's like bodies and light and contemporary music. And it was mind blowing in a way that I didn't experience it with, with seeing Traviata again, even though I loved La Traviata. Like there's that I was like, I just felt much more pulled towards this kind of creation. And uh, after one of these shows, I was walking home. There was all these starlights. I was like, what am I doing? Why do I run after a career where even if I would reach my goal, it's probably not even what I really want. It's just because I spent so many years on it. And it was really there I decided, okay, I want to look out for another training. Um, I want to go more into this kind of contemporary creation. Um, and it was also like reflecting on my experience. I we had done some s- student productions. I was always like speaking into the director's intention. And then like, <laughs> I remember one production direct- director, she was like, hey, I'm the director, not you. Leave me all you know, of my ideas. I was like, okay, I shut up. I do whatever they say. Like, but it's, 
I always had this urge to make my own statements, my own ideas. And oftentimes it was very welcome, but, but there was like, stop, I need to find my way to really not become, not only be the instrument for other people's ideas and other people's visions, but like develop my own. And yeah, so things just quite quickly developed. I found a master degree in Bern in Switzerland, which was called Expanded Theater. We were, I was the only singer, but there were dancers, actors, playwrights. And the idea was that we develop our own scenic art forms that are happening in theaters. It could also be in like galleries, but mostly like theatrical venues where we are authors and performers at the same time. That's awesome. Yes, it was. You're actually making me really sad right now because I, I got accepted to the band program, their master's in singing way back when. Oh, wow. And first of all, we could have met there. And second of all, like, maybe I would have run across that program. I don't know. You never know. Like, you look back on life and see all these paths you didn't go down. And it's it's fine. It's wonderful. Like, everything is exactly as it should be. But, oh, I didn't even know that that was there. That's so cool. It's, a, it's, a, it's the theater masters, not the singing masters in that ah. sense. It's, so it's really, I was like the exception, but also this, it's, yeah, no, I mean, there's so many paths to happiness. And it's, I think we'd never know un, until we look back and be like, oh, that's my path. You know, it's always easy from the looking back to be like, oh yeah, even now in my current situation, there's so many question marks with COVID, with the theater scene being like so uh, hit heavily. Like it's, it's, um, no, but this, yeah, like, so I entered this course and immediately it felt just like, oh my God, I'm at home. You know, we got a key for a huge hall. We could do whatever we wanted. I could reserve it for a day, put plastic sheets all over the walls and invite a few other dancers and performers. And we, we, we got like 200 kilograms of old tomatoes and made like a, a battlefield with tomatoes and a drummer and, and like just experimenting and being creative. And it felt just so free and alive. And for me, it was like, I really started to discover like, okay, what is it actually I have to say? What are the topics that I'm interested in? And especially also as a, like, uh, as a, as a homosexual man in the 21st century, it's like the stories told in, in, in the classical canon of opera, it's not my stories. I mean, I, I'm also, I'm a feminist and like the women mostly, I'm just like, why are they falling in love in this, for this stupid guy after one second and sacrificing their lives? It's really, so there was something I really also started having like, let's say political problems with the kind of the storytelling, the magic flute when they, there's this line, a woman uh, is, what to say? Uh, she doesn't do much. She just talks all the time. Like these kind of lines and like, why are we still repeating that? And there is young people in the audience like we just have to change these texts it's not legitimate to continue with that shit sorry for my language but it's I really feel quite intense about it. it's like we can find replacement which still work for the opera and stop like reproducing terrible and uh, harmful stereotypes mm. on many levels uh, and I really feel like the opera is very behind in that so absolutely but I, yeah I felt just like I want to, I was interested in such different things and I wanted to be able to read a book and what I read has an impact on my art, not just like I, re I have a, a life apart from my operatic life, but they're completely disconnected hmm. because it doesn't matter if I read a book about, uh, about anything in the end, as long as I sing the right notes and I do what the director and the conductor tell me. Hmm. I mean, I'm, it's a bit a caricature, but I really felt like 
So I don't know why I did that. But then things in my studies, I had a workshop about marginalized communities and we were, we were pushed to doing interviews and I did interviews with like 10 male sex workers. So I entered also this whole field of like male sex work, which became later a topic in my own artistic work. Very, very important. Um, I made a, a play about uh, the situations of refugees in Switzerland where we... We interviewed people who, yeah, who, who came here as refugees, but then mixed it with Schubert's uh, Wanderer fantasy, like this image of the traveler who always misses home and never really arrives. And we made mm. this very delicate uh, play with one actor, me as singer and the pianist. So I, I try to find ways to mix classical, my classical training with, um, with more contemporary forms of theater and somehow I ended up in this contemporary dance world, I would say. I did two operas as a singer with choreographers um, and I loved like being also like a dancer. And then I, quite quickly I was like, why do we only, they only treat me as a singer? I can also move, I can also throw myself against the wall. Why do they just place me somewhere and have the dancers dance around me? Mm. Uh, so quite soon I was like, okay, I want to develop my own project so I can use my full skill set. And that's how it started for me. I built my own uh, interdisciplinary like theater, dance, music company based in Zurich and started making my own works immediately after my school in 2012. So it has been nine years. So the Vanda Fantasine and Traumboy, were they before you started your own company or after? After, actually. Yeah. These were both okay. projects that I did with my, with my company. Yeah. So mm. um, we did... Uh, in my school, it was really like trying out. I have like different workshops, projects. Also, I, I had workshops in project management, how to apply for funding, how to write a, a concept for a project. Um, we had method methodological workshops, like how to rehearse, how to like have good feedback culture. And it was, for me, it was really amazing. It was two years. I came out a new person. I felt like I had the creativity always in me, but this, this course gave me the skill sets and the network also to then continue. And then suddenly Holy I was- crap. Yeah. Okay, any educator listening to this, can we just make this the standard? That's just all I have to say. Like, We wonder why there are dwindling opportunities in opera and we're literally taught instead of make your own thing and hire your friends and get funding and here's how, we're taught no you just have to be like 10 times better yeah but it's that's kind of the yeah that's the misconception like I feel but what I see now looking also at the school years we really try to shape the singers into what we need which is like solid voices uh they can learn a score quickly and be stable with it they know like how to follow direction and uh otherwise they better shut up I mean it mm. sounds a bit terrible but like the, the it's very thing, much it's almost like a it's almost like a um well we're making pieces for a machine yes and they must fit and reliably work instead of like trying to have artists who are full humans like we all have passions and interests I don't know it can be that you love mushrooms and you're interested in in collecting mushrooms and then you can connect that with your musicality and with your voice or like anything there's so many ways to I think like we need to know what we're passionate about and none there is not one singer who is only passionate about about opera i mean we all have other topics other 
other things. And I think that the strength comes when we when we mix them. And I mean, for me, it has also been like learning that I'm I love like I have a really raw and wild side into my personality. I'm I can be like nice and professional, but I can also be like crazy. And I it's also a, a something I can use creatively. And it's not something that is ever it usually doesn't really have space in in opera unless you have like you're at the level where you can sing like these insane roles and you find this perfect melting of like the craziness and the technique but it's personally I never got there for me I was always either like crazy and then I would no, have no voice left the next day or I would be in my technicality and maybe people think wow he goes far but yeah, like having both for me it didn't work to be honest i felt it was always so controlled and so maybe i don't know how it is for other people but yeah i would love i mean it's something i, I see like i see people entering music academies as full people and they kind of diminish all the fire which is not serving this idea of becoming like the best singer and i think it's a mistake because we're we are better humans if we keep all our fire mm. and our art will live stronger if the fire stays in it i'm not even sure if it's always the art there is many things you know i think mm. art is one part it can be also like teaching it can be doing activism it can be uh, cooking it can be there's so many forms of like expressing yourself i mean they're all creative and artistic maybe also but i think in the end we don't have to remain artists it's also okay mm. to start a crazy beautiful vegetable garden and then become part of a collective that wants to do sustainable farming you know there is so many uh beautiful ways to be in this world um and i also for me like in the last few years like the the urgency that we have with with problems like social justice problems like climate change or the climate crisis uh for me also a huge topic is um uh, the animal agriculture and like the the abuse of animals and the complete disregard of their dignity and their their potential as as, as beings so it's such important, urgent topics. And then like, I feel weird spending my full life um, practicing coloratura when our climate is burning, our house is burning and I'm practicing coloratura the whole day. I mean, it's, it's weird. Hey, it's Gwendolyn. If you think these conversations are important, be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at makingit.opera. That's making it without the G. You can also support the podcast by going to makingitinopera.com and making a donation. That's making it an opera, always without the G. And listeners, every once in a while, I want to make a podcast to just workshop this question with all of you. And for that, I need your help. Record a voice memo of yourself telling me what has been the most fulfilling thing you've done with your art and what it means to you to make it. And email that file to me at makingitinopera at gmail.com. Let's keep changing the narrative together. Okay, back to the show. Mm. And I definitely want to get more into that and your life now. And at the same time, I'm so interested in hearing you go a bit into what the process of creating your company and creating these first projects, getting the buy-in, like literally the buy-in of your audience and grantors. I know the, I know like the water you're swimming in, in Switzerland is a lot different than in America or in other, God only knows who else is going to listen to this, but 
I'm curious kind of what your process was to kind of get your first foothold to make your first thing. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so for me, again, like you said, like Switzerland has a very strong independent art scene with the possibility of getting funded, which is already different than, than many other places. So mm-hmm. um, the context was also very helpful in, in that sense. I could, uh, at the end of my school, I had this project in mind. I was very inspired by Les Balassés de l'Abbé. It's a Belgium a contemporary dance company that works very interdisciplinary with musicians, with singers, with dancers from all over the world, very virtuosic movement quality. And um, I loved their works. And uh, so I, I did a workshop with, with one of their dancers um, in their main venue in Belgium. And just, yeah, he was really strong. Quan Bunyok, a Vietnamese uh, choreographer and dancer. He was very strong in pulling like out of everybody who was in the workshop, like their their particular movement quality, their creativity. Um, and so in the end of the workshop, I just asked him if he would like to, to collaborate on a project. And he was wow. he was like, uh, let's see if this weird singer from Switzerland is really like following up or just blah, blah, blah. And I was like, let's see. So, yeah, I developed the concept for my first show. I was interested. It was 2012. So the preparation, maybe 2011, I was really interested in to this, this, this kind of group dynamic when camaraderie between like men turns into violence. Mm. Um, so a lot about toxic masculinity. I didn't have the terms like that back then. Um, and the idea was to work in a, in a, in a cast, like mostly men, but one woman and, uh, and create like with the pianist, the drummer, me as a singer, and then dancers, like uh, this kind of complete work where everybody is treat, treated the same in the creative process. Mm. We don't treat, we are all there for three months of creation, the drummer as much as the singers, as the dancers. And of course, we are different, and there's a place for everybody's difference. And funny enough, like I, I was just bold. I reached out to different theaters, contemporary dance places, performance places, and I managed to f- get on board four different venues in Switzerland. So it was immediately quite a, a thing. Usually the first project is like one venue, two people. I was wild. We were eight on stage. We had like a grand piano, 1000 liters of waters, metal fences. I was so naive because I came from this operatic context where I thought like doing a show with eight people and all this stuff, it's easy, you know, <laughs> but so <laughs> it's it was, a tiny show. It, yeah, it's I, nothing. I, so, but somehow the, the, I think that the theater directors were kind of impressed by this bold, weird uh, opera singer who wants to do uh, this crazy stuff. So somehow they wanted to have to see it. And then, so I found them as partners with them as partners. I could do the fundraising with this tour like set up we could uh, also like hire really good dancers who were interested also especially since Quan Bunyok was really a is quite a big person in this dance community so we had like a that's how it started but then we did so we did two projects together uh, with Quan and then I realized though that I still don't fully express myself because in a mm-hmm. way I was also a bit hiding behind the collaboration I would say so I felt more secure to be like artistic directors as a duo than really taking artistic responsibility by myself. And the first project where I really did that was Traumboy, which is a solo about male sex work, where I 
uh, used all the information I gathered in my interviews, but also personal experience. So it was like a mix of autofiction and documentary theater. And I said, I want to do a solo play where I'm alone on stage. I write, I direct, I perform. And my goal is that I tell the story of a, a character who is a sex worker, but in a way that if my parents or my sister, if they come to see the show, they don't know if I tell the truth or not. Mm. So really close to me, who I am. And uh, so this show created quite a buzz, I would say. I toured the whole Europe with it. I was also in the US. Um, and it changed, I would say, that suddenly I was uh, in an international kind of circuit as, an, as a performing artist. And I had one more project that went along with that. It was called Full Service. Um, where I just put a tent in front of like a theater or a, even in the street sometime, part of like festivals. And I was offering that anybody could come by and start a conversation with me about their desires and wishes and everything they could, they could express anything. And then we would negotiate the price. And if we made an agreement on the price, I would perform the service for them. Anything. And <laughs> <laughs> I bet that gave you such a, view into like the human psyche it's crazy it's crazy yeah. yeah what did you find out about that I mean the starting point was again also like this weird feeling of like why do people when I tell them I'm an opera singer they're like oh wow and if I would tell them I do sex work they're like mm -hmm. you know or if I tell them I'm mm -hmm. cleaning toilets at McDonald's like why do we have this different value valuation of work and uh but then also I was interested in people's desires and in intimacy. And I mean, the experiences were crazy. It's, it's, there's, everything is on a website called Full Service Project, like an archive, but it goes from spending a night with a heartbroken woman in Yokohama in, in Japan without kissing and sex though, and just trying to warm her heart over one night to performing a Mormon ritual on a person who left the Mormon church and who wanted to reconnect with his spirituality to uh, letting people trim my pubic hair to many, many other things. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like stepping out of that comfort zone of of sharing that artistic responsibility with someone and taking the lead, artistically at least, was really what opened things up for you. Yes, definitely. I think I just became more radical because in collaborations, mm. of course, usually you have to find the middle ground. Everybody wants to agree on what you do and what you don't do in the final decisions. But like, it was also, I mean, I, back then I was like, I just wanted to like, find out also what can I do and what not and this full service project for example was definitely like uh, I want to see if I can do anything and then of course not everything worked and sometimes I was in situations with like why did I end up in this situation <laughs> <laughs> but it was beautiful I mean sometimes I also had to sing an opera aria you know so there was there was this element still coming back and it was um but it was just one thing among so many others it was just also nice to experience myself as so much more than just somebody who can learn a score and lyrics and then sing it. Mm. And as, as this was all unfolding, kind of going back to the technical aspect of getting stuff like this done, had you found management or were you still, were you still being the one reaching out to the theaters and the festivals to make it happen? Um, so by then that like these projects were like two, three years after my first one or even four years. So yeah, I had even had like three different product 
production managers that they always leave and come because it's so bad paced. <laughs> so it's like, uh, um, yeah, but I worked, I collaborated with producers, uh, but it's in Switzerland, it's also like, it sounds, it sounds like more, it's usually, sometimes it was just friends who were learning this job, who had done a similar thing for another project, but, but then it became more and more professionalized, I would say. I received grants more for like my company, like the full year thing, but everything stayed always a bit precarious. I think that's the nature also of this work. It's always project-based or, or most of the time. Interestingly enough, also, I, I did in the beginning still do in parallel classical singing stuff. So I, I did two opera productions, in, in, one in Germany, one in Belgium. One was so funny, it was Zigeuner Baron, Gypsy Baron. And there, for example, they cast me as an old, old narrator. The dialogues were cut out. I had to be the narrator and I had to perform as an old person. And it felt so embarrassing to me. I was like, why don't they cast an older person to be the older narrator? And I, I, it's so ridiculous to play like I can't walk or sit down. It felt really, really awkward. I was ashamed every time to go on stage, to be honest. Mm. Just because it's just like, what are, what are we doing? Of course, I was cheaper than a more experienced singer. I get it from this perspective, but it's like... Yeah, I don't know. It just felt really off. Um, mm. Like, what am uh, what are we trying to say here by casting a twenty-something as a? Yes, mm. exactly. And it and I ended up having an offer also to join a, a an ensemble in Cottbus in Germany. Okay. So I went to the city and I I was just like, oh my god, what what should I do there? I don't like this place. It's 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 eastern, deep eastern Germany. I'm a Jewish gay man. Uh, I'm gonna die and then like the roles were not interesting at least the first season so I was like I'm really happy and I was hesitating because like this would have been a completely different path mm -hmm. and back then I had just finished my first two projects with Quan, which were successful but like I hadn't really come fully into my power I would say as an artist and um, was part of it the security of a of an ensemble position that was like part of the debate or I think not necessarily. I mean, because the payment is so bad that with my like funded Swiss projects and living between Berlin and Switzerland, I probably have the same salary in the end. Mm -hmm. I think it was more like I worked so hard towards there. Now is my chance. Now or never. Mm -hmm. And um, but then also like yeah, I'm a young. I was a young man, and I liked. Berlin I liked all the opportunities that I had there from like having interesting friends and encounters and going to parties and like all these aspects of life they were like I loved it and I was not ready to give up to yeah to become like a fix uh, Angestellter in a, in, a, in a theater where I have no freedom anymore after mm, mm. yeah it's such an interesting <laughs> It's an interesting thing that exists in Germany that I think is beautiful that there are these smaller houses, like these smaller centers of art in these tiny towns where, you know, you can go and you can go and actually get something. And it's from people, it's from your neighbors, basically. It's from people who, you know, your kid is probably in school with, with their kids. And um, I mean, I worked in one of those houses and I totally see what you mean. I um, I commuted between Berlin and Dessau partly because I couldn't I I couldn't let go of Berlin 
well, my husband was there, but I also was just like, as a city, I couldn't let go of it being a young person and wanting that. But at the same time, we have, I've thought a lot about this like centralization of culture that we have in like all throughout at least the Western world that I know of. There's just like, if you care about culture and you care about art, you can be in maybe three or four cities in any given country. Um, in some countries, just one. And the rest of the country is just like, well, I hope you have a television. So I see what you mean. And at the same time, I'm wondering if there's a way to kind of develop that sort of that sort of local art scene more. I think it's really beautiful what you say. And I think it's so amazing. I mean, I loved, I saw two productions there in Cottbus. I loved them. They were so high quality, like like what you say. It's, and and this decentralization, yeah, it's it's actually absolutely amazing. At the same time, it's the system of like the the, the working conditions to the they are really awful and it's like it has like a, almost like a feudal old school uh like that you will live in a place and after two years there's a new director and they just have to two of the ensemble gets kicked out like there's something very hierarchical and and like this like just far very remote from from like modern ways of collaborating of like mm. developing like engagement and i I feel like that's what, it, what attracts me towards the independent art scene because mm -hmm. there is not this steep hierarchy. Yes, the security is much lower, um, but we can really like build new ways of collaborating, new ways of like doing artistic research of like working with scientists. And like there's literally no limits on the, each project can have a new form depending on the content. Mm. And this is what I love in my field now. It's really like, okay, I want to work on that. What would mm. be an interesting form? Okay, maybe like, and it's, it's like, I, I feel like in that sense, I become like an artist in the broad sense, where now there is no limit anymore. I don't care if I'm doing music, if I do dance, if I do theater, if I do an installation, if I do conceptual art. It's just expressions of things that I feel and think and want to mm. share. Yeah, and there's so much like, there's so much open for you because you don't have these ideas of what you're allowed to do anymore. Um, yeah, I think we we spend so much time. We we spend like ten years becoming, at minimum, we spend about ten years becoming professional singers. Really, about six years of yeah. education, sometimes seven or eight, and then it takes a few years afterwards to to still really come into our voices and. And then we think that we're only allowed to do one thing because that's what we're trained for. And what I'm hearing for you is that it's just everything. Now, yes. Now, honestly, yes. I also tried stuff where I had to realize I'm not that good at it. <laughs> <laughs> like I work, working as a choreographer with a with a bigger team, I didn't manage to work work in it. it was like I did, I didn't have the vocabulary and the skills, which was okay to realize also. Like, but uh, mm -hmm. um like the thing which I think is interesting there's this this mistake sometimes in our brains where we think um because we I know I spent 50 dollars on something already so now I have to follow through with it and pay the the, the, the other 200 otherwise I lose this money mm. or because I spent already a few years on this career path I have to push through as for 10 years more mm -hmm. rather than being like what do I want today 
like who I who I am now, it has nothing to do with my past. It has to do with who I want to be in my future. Mm, absolutely. And 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 that's what I, that's it's even now like COVID like so many cancellations like so many like projects that so many people put so much effort in like being shut down and and shattered and and then do you wait now now two years later do you want to do it again or maybe not anymore and Mm. I don't know I'm also like trying to find out okay what is next for me do I still like this context of contemporary theater that I have been moving around in the last few years or should I work towards a new context I don't know it's really Mm. and of course reinventing yourself is complicated and takes a lot of energy and effort but sometimes also it removes energy and effort that is spent in the wrong place. And suddenly you have like, yeah. That's so wise. I, um, I wanted to go back to something that, that you said just to highlight it um, kind of in the middle of your story where you were talking about you sat in a room in your first production with everyone and had this objective that you guys were all going to make this piece of art together from the beginning. And it's funny because my parents are in, are are trained in theater and that's how they told me things were made. So they, they told me like, you know, how the process was when they were, when they were in school and grad school and when they, when they did their first few productions and, and they were like, you know, you sit down with the director and everyone has a conversation about what's going to serve the story from the angle that they're telling the story. And I never encountered that. Never, ever, ever in opera did I sit down with anyone and have anyone give a shit what I thought about what was going on in the show. And, and like, on the one hand, I have, I have made my own concepts and I know it's really important to, to feel like you have the last say. And, because you know it was kind of like your baby it's born with you but at the same time there it's like learning to find a place where where other people's ideas I can't say I'm really that great at it I want to I want to learn and how to be better but that it's not the standard that that performers that the people who are helping to tell the story are at all actually part of telling the story and it's something I actually tuned into a, an Opera America. I think it was their, their like big yearly meeting. And one big thing they were talking about was getting artists and listening to artists in the process of, of making pieces because artists in COVID were the ones who just kept making. It was the industry and the institutions that had to shut down. And I remember sitting there thinking like, why was this never the standard? Why do none of us know how to do this? And I'm wondering, since you have done it, and it was the first thing you did with the first thing you made, what did you learn from it? And, and did it kind of come out of like missing that in what you had done before? Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, if you put up a project from A to Z, you just learn a lot through everything. I don't know transport you have a stage design where do you store your stuff what kind of access you need from the transport space to the to the, the vehicle you have how do you organize it who is there to help uh, unpack um, like 
all these little things, I mean, it sounds silly, from contracts, from administration questions to, to timeline questions, when is the right moment to, to, to talk about what and with whom, and I mean, it's, it's, it's so much, it's, it's, I feel like it's, it's a whole, uh, yeah, it's, like, it's so much learning, and it's also evolving depending on the needs of the project, I would say, but the, like, for me, like, essential is, like, whoever I work with, I want to see them as people and not just as a skill set if i now uh, with soy the cow i work with a makeup artist i'm not just going to come there and say that's what i want to do it mm. you know it's like it's a conversation it's like what are what are you interested in or like where do we meet or what is the vision we can develop together um so there is something about also like how you are in the world and how do you treat other beings not even only humans but like there is I dream of a world where everybody can be fully self-expressed and no matter if it's an opera singer or if it's a, a chicken who is in a factory farm and has no chance of being self-expressed at all. Mm. So there is something about, about like this, this, all this conditioning and putting people into like shapes and frames. Uh, yeah, it's very, very harmful. I mean, there's no wonder there's so much depression and so much anxiety because we feel like we have to be a certain way in all fields, not only I think in our in, in opera, but it's it's but then also the world is so unfair the way it's organized with opportunities and resources that that it's I'm also very aware, like I'm from Switzerland, I have a lot of education, it gives me a lot of like privilege to to go to these places where I can accept like a non-secure mm. job. Mm-hmm. Um so it's uh, in that sense, I also feel like I wanna, I wanna use this the platform I can have really to kind of allow others to express themselves. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean, and so I think this does dovetail very nicely into the the project you are embodying now as Soya the cow. Um, I gotta say, like. Now that we're talking about Soya the Cow, I am fan fangirling just a little bit because I got to see your your video. It's just your work with Soya the Cow is exquisite. And I want to know, I want to know how the idea came to you. There is there's something so operatic about it. Like she <laughs> she is this beautiful queen. And she like I could imagine her taking up a huge stage with 150 piece orchestra. Like she belongs in that kind of yes, space. <laughs> and, and at the same time, there's, there is something so like intimate and honest about her. I remember, I read that some of this started coming up while you were in San Francisco around the like activist drag queens. And I just, I wanna hear the story. Yeah, so I, in a way, Soya the Cow, at the moment, I feel everything becomes full mm. circle in a way I had never expected. Like in this boys choir, I we had the rehearsal camps. Of course, there were only boys, but then we did like theater and sketch nights. I always played all the female characters from age seven to uh, age 18. In this boys choir, I was always like the, the female characters. And I loved it. I was really good at it. So this aspect... Uh, I, didn't, I wouldn't call it drag, but it was cross-dressing in theater. I don't know what it was, but I loved it. I was really good at it. <laughs> so, so this. Then also the singing. I would say like in my last projects, the singing became less and less pro- present. 
because I felt I wanted to explore other aspects of me as a performer. And now it's Soya the Cow, I'm writing songs from the perspective of a dairy cow. So it's, uh, it's very lyrical. I mean, being a, uh, an animal, a so-called farm animal, there is not much joy about it. It's, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It's so much pain, so much abuse. And so finding melodies, finding emotions and uh, lyrics, there's something very, very, yeah, very sad, very melancholic, which fits with my, like, say, yeah, operatic background, as you describe it. And in a way, I, yeah, the vision came seeing uh, drag artists uh, from all genders in San Francisco being very adamant about uh, the, the Trump administration, which was just uh, newly in power back then. And at the same time, also animal liberation groups that were so like, they said in 40 years, the US is going to be uh, fully plant-based. We will not have any ag animal agriculture anymore. And I was like, wow. I just had become vegan in doing my research for a different play about meat. Then the play was censored. It was very complicated. It was like, and I realized, oh, the art scene doesn't really care about these topics of animal rights. Everybody's like, like environmentalist, everybody's feminist, everybody was for equal rights, but only equal rights for humans. So uh, I'm if you're interested in going a little bit more into what happened with your, with your play that got censored. There was a scene where uh, two performers uh, kind of reenacted the insemination of cows. Mm. I don't know if you have seen images of that. Usually it's a, a, a human person putting their whole arm into the cow's uh, vagina. Uh, no, actually it's not the vagina, it's in the rectum, but that, like this way they can touch the, the, um, the, the, um, the cervix and find the right place to position the syringe to fertilize them. And it's something quite violent, like the object where they put the cows in, in the slang, in the farmer's slang, they say they call it rape racks. So there's, uh, it's, I'm not necessarily for these kind of comparisons. Uh, I know it, every, all these different sufferings and oppressions are very different, but the, what is done to cows in order to have them pregnant so that they have a baby, so the baby can be taken away so that humans can use the milk for their own purposes and make money on it or drink it or eat cheese. It, it's, 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 it's a cruel practice if you look at it with some distance and it's completely normalized in our society. And the theater director at one venue, she said that this scene is not, uh, is not uh, tolerable for her audience. Mm. And I told her like, but these are two adult performers who give consent. I didn't force them to do that. They, I asked if anybody in the whole team would be interested in performing the scene. And it's also just a reenactment. It's not like he's up in there with his full arm and he can say, no, the cow can't. Mm. Or the no of the cow is not listened to, let's say like this. And I told her, like, how can you serve milk in your, in your, in your theater restaurant, but you don't allow this scene to happen? It's completely hypocritical. And, but yeah, but the conversation didn't go very far. We were not allowed to play there. Um, and I was very frustrated. And I think this frustration also led me to Soya mm. in the sense that I, I understood that like being cryptic and artistic and subtle doesn't work on a topic where there's so much unlearning to do. Like myself too, I had not known anything about what happens to cows. I ate meat my whole life. I ate dairy and eggs my whole life. And only like, a, yeah, around 30 years old, I started to connect the dots and see how cruel these practices are and how unnecessary in a time where we have so many different alternatives. Mm. And 
I realized I need the directness of drag queens and drag kings who just don't take any, like they just say things as they are. And maybe it's cruel for the people who listen, but it's true or it's what has to be heard and said. So this really inspired me. And then uh, I know just out of a joke from saying, you know, in, uh, in German, cow is Kuh. And I think Kuh sounds like queen. And I don't know, somehow the idea came out, ah, drag, Kuh. <laughs> And out of the joke came uh, Soya. So I don't know, it just, it, it, it started to happen in the beginning. I thought myself, it was more like a fun project. And then by now it's about three years later. Soya has completely taken over my life. <laughs> she has more clothes than I have. When I travel, I always have to pack for her and for myself. My boyfriend hates her because he's in a triangle relationship with the cow and me. <laughs> no, but it's, so she has been growing from like being a kind of a parody inspired by drag queens and drag kings into becoming like this. It's amazing. I, I discover I can be a visual artist now. I can work with fashion designers. I can collaborate with video artists. I can, uh, I did a theater play called Dear Human Animals. It's a one cow show. It's me alone on stage for almost two hours. A crazy show where I put really all my heart, my stupidity, my the, the whole ridiculousness and the power of me dressing up as a cow trying to change the world and failing at it and then at the same time not failing at it so there's something monumental as you say like i mean i'm fighting against the whole complex of animal industries the whole system that thinks makes it uh, like normalizes the violence against animals and i'm i i imagine soya you know as this kind of heroine tragic heroine uh, in my play uh, there's like a trip into the future and 2060 when finally the whole world is veganized. Uh, Soya is uh, singing the, the Olympic uh, hymn at the, at the Olympic Games, which are plant-based for the first time. And it's called Moo, Moo, Move Your Body. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then she gets shot by some like hardcore steak, uh, steak defense army terrorist. <laughs> so oh. so I, don't know, I, I love inventing stories and and... Yeah, one day uh, maybe the opera will exist. It's true. I was, nice. I, I <laughs> literally was just thinking of Tosca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've never, I didn't become Tosca, but I'm Soya now, and it's true. I can, I can, I can. My my audience is a bit smaller unless I'm doing like big street protests. So I'm also performing in street protests where sometimes it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm which is also amazing, you know, like, like understanding that I do not only have to sing in this one context, I can sing for, in my show, maybe it's 100 people in a smaller theater venue, but if it's a street protest, uh, I was supposed to sing for 7,000 people on the biggest animal rights uh, protest in Germany, but it was mm. canceled due to COVID. Um, and these kind of things are, are uh, yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm learning to write pop songs now I made an electro pop album I'm I'm also still finding like my sound and how I want to do it now I'm more working on like piano and voice songs looking maybe for a band I don't know there's so many options suddenly and there is something so poetic about it that you've already touched on and it's this this connection of the cruelty of factory farming and the cruelty we have towards one another and who we consider has dignity and who does not. I mean, I think we have that very compartment. We have that very compartmental. I can't say the word compartmentalized even amongst humans. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like that's really where this concept came from of let me make a, 
a drag queen out of a cow to show you all of these places where we where we are compartmentalizing our I don't want to say humanity but yes. <laughs> our what a, what would you call it if we're, we're our inner species dignity like what or like yeah like a, I mean my dream would be a multi-species community the world as a multi-species community we share this planet we are housemates we are all housemates in the end you know mm. and we depend on each other with other species and 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 in that sense yeah like when soya i always say she's of course she stands for animal liberation but humans we're animals mm. so there is no animal liberation without human liberation mm. and in a way i would even say there is no human liberation without animal liberation because what kind of humans are we when we do these things to animals or to other animals and I mean Soya is obviously queer Soya is obviously like environmentalist and I I I am in deep solidarity and admiration for feminist activists for in- inclusivity for Black Lives Matter there's so many important battlegrounds and I feel in the end like what is being done usually we 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 exclude some people from this kind of elusive circle of being of of moral concern. No, you don't matter because you're like that. Mm. And oftentimes we comp- the, the oppressed group is compared to animals. Mm. Like it's, it's really like systematically, uh, uh, I don't want to reproduce these tropes that are in our heads, but like women are like this, uh, Jewish people are like this, black people are like this. And like, there's these, these, uh, but, in the end, like when you say like somebody is treated like cattle, like nobody should be treated like cattle, not even cows. Mm. Mm. You know, like there is there is something if we and I, I don't want to also like make a universal message. I know we are in a complex world. Life is very different in different corners of this world. I cannot talk for people living in Groenland or living in, in some remote areas. I can only speak about our society where I situate myself. And I know in Switzerland, in Germany, we do not need to tor- torture animals and kill them in order to sustain our life. We can eat healthy, colorful, seasonal and tasty food, which is amazing. We can live like that. And it's, it's everything else. It's just like a relic of a toxic past in my eyes. And there is like the urgency of the climate, the climate crisis also and the, the biodiversity cli- crisis. They are like, we need this next 10 years are decisive of like how how much this planet will transform and there's so many victims human victims mostly in the global south but also animal victims animals who disappear like and they have cultures they have families they have love affairs they have they have so many things that are important to us and we deny them all of that and as much wild animals when we destroy their habitats as much as uh, um as uh yeah farmed animals of course and now for me like trying to trying to use my voice to amplify all these voices is really it feels just so right Mm -hmm. you know like i i had sometimes doubts when i was singing i don't know a schubert song about uh, some random flower and spring poetry it's like oh my gosh what is this about Mm -hmm. you know i couldn't really reconnect but now like when i can sing and i know why uh it just feels it makes absolute sense and i'm like okay maybe all these years in conservatory the music academy they were not lost you know it's like it's they come back to me and and 
I'm still not the best singer in the world, but I can use my voice. And I am thinking about your, like the way that you're able to portray her and the way you, in all of the different media that she's part of, there's this joy to her. It's not all doom and gloom. There's also this joy that makes her so lovable. And I'd love to know how, how you kind of fold that in because you're coming from this place of, of all of the terrible things that happen. And I think that's a, it kind of comes back to the wider art world, trying to figure out how to tell these stories in a way where, tell people's stories in a way where people get to be whole people and not just pictures of tragedy. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, thank you for saying that. It's really, it's really important to me because I mean, sometimes I also like I feel paralyzed. I read a book about industrial fishing and I finish the book and I cannot get out of my bed anymore because it's so crushing and it's so terrible. And it's so like the, the, the numbers, the numbers are so huge. It's unimaginable. But if you know individuals like in, in Turkey, I had this beautiful experience with a Turkey in an animal sanctuary and I will never look at Turkeys the same way. And like, it's crushing. So I feel I need Soya to be optimistic in a way, maybe more than I am. <laughs> you know, it's like, she gives me hope and, 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 and the persistency to continue, even though like, like we have this green wave in all elections all over Europe and not one single government actually takes measures that really can tackle the like the challenges for climate crisis and it's it's insane it's 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 terrible and at the same time like i feel like criticizing is somehow easy but what we need is really like build utopias and show different forms of living it's like it's of course you can show footage of slaughterhouses but you can also show amazing menus that are plant based and say like we don't need blood on our plates we don't need it anymore mm. and the same i feel is like with uh, yeah, for Soya, for me, like I want her to to show we don't have to give up anything, maybe some stupid recipes, but we can replace them with other stuff. We, we win so much. We win, we win joy. We win lightness. We win the future. We win our humanity. You know, it sounds maybe a bit kitsch, but I, I really feel that's what I would like to that what I would like to be like the resonance of what what, what I do. Um, we, we recently did the photo shoot. It's not out where I'm just dressed in like salad and coal and and a little bra out of grapes and you know like I don't have to say much more it's just like it's it's life and it's it's alive and it's the opposite of when Lady Gaga where was wearing this this dress made of dead body parts of other animals mm. and if we manage all of us like to build these these hopeful little communities and projects that make us like dream that we can be happy and we can be happy maybe also with less consumption and less traveling and like so many things that we will have to kind of adapt to um but nevertheless we can we can be fully fulfilled that's what mm. i kind of dream of it sounds like it's the this principle of the way we do one thing is the way we do everything mm. so you were talking about the elections and one thing that came up for me was what it would take for people to be able to afford to eat an only plant-based diet. In a lot of ways, it's a lot cheaper. And in some ways, if you're thinking about, you know, buying these meat substitutes, it's actually quite 
quite a bit more expensive and that we're, we're actually going to have to take care of each other in order to also take care of the rest of the planet. That it's, it's this like, it's this big knot, like we're all, we're all so deeply connected. Absolutely. We're so connected. And I mean, taking care of each other is the same as taking care of the planet, I would say, in the end. And, and for the, the in, I think, I mean, it's politics in the end. We have to change the politics. The subsidies subsidize with billions and billions the animal industries, which destroy our planet, destroy these animals, and they also destroy our health. So it's like, there's like a triple cost that nobody pays for. It's just cheap meat, but actually we pay, all of us pay a price with our health, with the health of our planet and with the animals who pay with their lives. And also they're, even when they're alive, they're suffering terribly. So there's something, it seems so logical that that's the path to go to me, that we shift these, these money, these, or these, uh, these subsidies towards, like we should support the farmers. They're not our enemies. They're, they produce food, this is amazing. But rather than growing crops that are fed pigs, they can grow stuff that we can eat directly. It's very simple in the end. We just have to kind of, and there also maybe soya for me. So is, I, I like the, this, this transformation aspect. Like if I can become a cow or a drag cow with high heels and different bone structure in my face, thanks to some, some makeup, then as a society, we can also transform. It's possible. We can become whoever we want. We just need to put their energy at the right place and the funds at the right place. Is there room in your vision? Um, I'm thinking about this because I was actually staying with a a friend who runs kind of a communal farm and it's just this beautiful place where pigs run around all over the property and chickens live on a lot of land and eventually they are they are slaughtered and their eggs are collected that was actually when we were first supposed to have our <laughs> we've y'all we have tried so much to <laughs> <Yeah>. get together <laughs> um that was actually where I was initially going to inter interview you. So I was having a lot of thoughts about, you know, is holding, holding space for an animal that you know you will eventually slaughter, but while they're, while they're alive, they're getting to live as happy a life as possible. I know that is quite different from factory farming. Is there a place in your vision for that? Or is, or is your hope that we'll just completely move on from that sort of way of eating? Personally, I would have different answers. One is more like an ecological answer, which is unfortunately, these animals, they need even more land and more food because they grow slower. So if, if everybody would like to eat products from these animals, we would need even, it's even more polluting. We need even more planets. So it's, unfortunately, it's less sustainable. Mm because the pigs and mm -hmm. the like they if they, they not if it's not intensive farming they grow slower so they eat more over the time so there's some there's a, like a problem from an ecological point of view i mean maybe if everybody does eat like a little little like one egg every two months you know but like not in, it has in, if we want to keep consuming the way we do it no chance it's just not possible mm -hmm. with one planet um and then from the more the ethical answer is for me like there is no difference between a dog and a pig or a chicken or a cat. So I love dogs. I love pigs. I have met pigs. I know every pig has a different personality at the farm where I used to work. It's a sanctuary, so we don't eat, uh, eat the animals. They just live there. I know that Leonie is completely different than Tim, who is completely different than Tiffy. And 
So I just would never want to eat them because they're my friends. So like mm-hmm. once we open this space in our heart where we stop dividing the world into some beings are edible and others not for no other reason than tradition, for no other reason than it has always been done like this. And then I just don't understand why we would do it. That's all. Like I, if people do it, mm. I'm not the one who will, I will not. Uh, but like knowing pigs and knowing chickens, I just wish, wish them the best life. And they can live much longer than when they're usually slaughtered. We kill these animals and their babies or a teenager. Mm. And, and then the other thing is the killing usually is not that harmless. Like we can try like the humane killing. I want to see it. I want to see yeah. how this humane is without panic, without like a terrible transport, without, and we destroy families. These pigs are friends with each other. When we kill one, the other one will be depressed. Like the mm. same with chickens. I've seen chickens crying every evening for their, for their loved one, which has been dead because it died a natural death. But still then they, 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 they scream for them every evening. They're, like we underestimate them so much. And uh, mm. I think it's about getting to know them and learning from them and, and then like, yeah, I, I'm not about making, you know, like it's not about for this is forbidden, this is allowed. I think the world is too complex to think in right and wrong like this, but it's about caring. Mm. And if mm. I care for these beings and who they are, I just simply don't want to kill and eat them. Mm. It's kind of coming back to this why. Um, why are you making what you're making? And coming full circle in our conversation because what you were talking about with eating things just to eat them because it's tradition. It's the way we've always done it. Fitting what we're doing into these different boxes because that's the way the industry is built and having the, having the freedom to actually make different decisions because we're creating our lives as we want to see them. I think that is, that is exactly my vision for opera and what I think that we'll be able to do when we when we actually free ourselves of this idea of there's one way to make it, there's one way to be an opera singer. So just kind of bringing it back there. And, and again, like, let's come back also to like, what made us sing in the first place. We want to share exactly who we are. We share our, our deepest emotions. And there is something so magical of if a singer sings. And to be honest, for me, Sometimes it happens also with singers who are not good singers. If they fully express themselves, I can have goosebumps and cry. There is something about people using their voices in any shape, any technique and any scale. I don't care. Uh, I think it's, yeah, like really daring to be authentic rather than trying to just, yeah, fit into these categories that you said. And um, Mm -hmm. And then also we can have fun and make errors and, and try out something and then be like, oh, that was a bad idea. <laughs> I, I had a song, which is like a German hip hop songs. And one reviewer said it's so embarrassingly terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever I tried, you know, there, you were okay. trying a thing. You were trying. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, my dear, for taking the time. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for doing what you're doing i've learned so much from you today and i've learned from your art as well thank you so much what a joy to talk to daniel you can follow him under at soya the cow that's at s-o-y-a-t-h-e-c-o-w on instagram and twitter 
He has tour dates coming up this November of 2021 for So You the Cow and Trown Boy. And you can find everything on his website, Daniel Minus Hellman, that's H-E-L-L-M-A-N-N dot com. Listeners, a reminder that you can get all those links in the show notes, where you can also find the link to sign up for our newsletter. If you do, you'll get a series of emails I'm calling the Audition Pep Talk series to remind you why you're out here making art and why your voice matters. If you sign up now, in October 2021, they should get you through the audition season. I'd also love to hear from you. Send an email to makingitanopera at gmail.com telling me what making it means to you. I may feature it in an upcoming episode where we can all workshop this question together. This podcast is a production of Sounds Like Cool with editing by me and production help from Sarah Decker. Theme music is Our Block Party by Reactor Productions. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, remember to subscribe, leave us some love on Apple Podcasts, and check us out on Instagram at makingit.opera to stay updated and become part of the conversation. You can also go to makingitanopera.com or follow the link in the show notes to support the podcast. I'm Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.